Hi, I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Rebecca. We're not from Memphis, but we love it. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. So let's do this. Cool. (laughs) So today on the podcast, I have John R. Stevenson, and he's going to talk to me about Liberty Land. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. I love talking Liberty Land, so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you. So back in the day, you actually wrote an article. I don't know if you even remember because oh, yeah. uh, it's been a while, for Memphis Type History, the blog. Yep, that was, I think, th- over three years ago now, which is crazy to yeah. think it's been that long. <laughs> so catch us up on what's happened since then. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of ironic. About that same time that I, was, uh, that I wrote that blog post, my eventual publisher for the book approached me and asked for or, you know, asked if I was interested in, in writing a book about Liberty Land as part of their Images of Modern America series. And at the time, I was living in Chicago. I was in grad school and was looking for a full-time job. And at that time, the timing wasn't right. And so I kind of fished it around Memphis with some people that I knew to see if there was any interest. And there wasn't. <laughs> so not that there wasn't any interest, just no one was able to take on the project. So kind of moved on and still in the, in the back of my head. And so um, fast forward two years later to June of 2016, or May, June 2016, I graduated uh, from the University of Memphis with my master's and had at that time had been living in Nashville for several months. And so I felt like at that time, the timing was right. Um, I had, you know, more free time and I felt like I could really devote the time and energy that something like this requires. And so um, I went back to the publisher, Arcadia Publishing, and asked if the offer, the the interest on their end was still there. And so fast forward another year and, and here we are. So it's been it's been a, a crazy, crazy three years between now and then. That's so cool. So you started, you had a website about Liberty Land, right? And then you also have a roller coaster a general, more general roller coaster website. Yes. And now you have a book. So tell us about all three of those things. What's inside, what's on these websites, what's inside the book and a little bit about just your history, how you came to be interested in all these things. Sure. So way, way, way back when uh, I first visited Liberty Land when I was five, it was my first amusement park. The Zip and Pippin was my first roller coaster. And I like to think that that visit really sparked my interest in roller coasters prior to that. I really didn't know what they were, um, but I remember so vividly that first ride on on the Zip and Pippin, and it was terrifying and exciting, and I was amazed by the experience. And so I think that was one of the early early memories that that sparked that passion. What has become a passion for roller coasters? And I'm in 2005. I started Coaster101.com, which is a kind of a general roller coaster amusement industry website. There are uh, seven riders, including myself, who travel the country and beyond riding roller coasters, riding about them. And I love riding. I'm a journalism major in school. And so I've always enjoyed riding. And so to be able to combine that with my love for roller coasters and thrill rides and theme parks has been something that I've really enjoyed. And so about the time that I started Coaster101.com, a few months after that, it was announced that Liberty Land was closing. And by that time, I had visited the park. I had grown up, grown up with the park and had so many fond memories of Liberty Land. And so it was devastating for a 14 year old to, to, to see that, you know, the park was going to be closed and it potentially would never ride the Zip and Pippin again. And so um, I got involved with Save Liberty Land as much as a 14-year-old could and, you know, very passionate about doing everything that I could, you know, to save and reopen the park. And I guess seven or eight months later, the park was auctioned off. Thankfully, the carousel was not included in that, thanks in part to Save Liberty Land and the people who were able to, I guess, bring to light the fact that the city still on the carousel. And so when it was pretty clear that Liberty Land wasn't going to be saved, I wanted to start a memorial or something to kind of keep the memories of the park alive and act as a hub for memories and photos and videos. There's a a former park in Nashville you might be aware of, Opryland USA, which closed in 97. And there's a similar website that uh, exists just to keep, you know, to act as a hub for photos and videos and memories and, you know, as a place for former employees to connect. And so... From Coaster 101 started this sort of an offshoot, Remember Liberty Land, and it 
over the years, it developed and I started a Facebook page and a Twitter for it. And it kind of caught on. People started using the Facebook page as a way to share photos and share memories of their time at the park, people who visited, people who worked there, and the audience grew. And in 2010, I was a sophomore. When I was a sophomore at the University of Memphis, I went to an event where Jimmy Ogle was speaking and famous Memphis historian slash legend, Jimmy Ogle. And Yes, total, was, total legend. <laughs> it, exactly. And I couldn't believe I didn't know of him until, you know, it, I was born and raised in Memphis. And that was the first time I was listening to him speak. And and I didn't even know he was in any way involved with Liberty Land. And so he began to speak. And it was just, I think, a general Memphis history overview. And he started talking about Liberty Land. And of course, I just was lit up. And so afterwards, I went up to him and introduced myself and told him about my Remember Liberty Land website. And there he had kind of Liberty Land, Save Liberty Land, and kind of morphed into remember Liberty Land on their side as an actual organization. And they were, I think at that point they were preparing, yeah, they were preparing to, to build the historical marker, which is on East Parkway near the intersection of East Parkway and Young Avenue. And so he was able to give me a piece of Zip and Pippin, an actual piece of the wood and the track. And so wow. that was very cool. Yeah. So what a I, treasure. Exactly. I guard it to this day. I mean, it's just, it's so, so cool to have that. And so anyway, I have kept up with him over the years and was able, he was actually able to write the foreword to the book, which was just, I could not have asked for a better way to start this book than, than with the, the wise words of Jimmy Ogle. And um, so anyway, so the book itself is really a chronological look of the park from before it was Liberty Land, which it was at first, the Fairgrounds Amusement Park was the predecessor to Liberty Land, and it opened in the, the 1920s, and that's when the Zip and Pippin was built, the Carousel was built. Those were both built new in 1923, which is often thought that the Zip and Pippin was built in 1912. There's all these stories of how the Zip and Pippin came to be and how it opened, and um, but it was actually built new as far as all of the historical documents that I was able to uncover, thanks to many historians who helped contribute to the book. And so um, so it kind of starts there at the fairgrounds and then proceeds to um, kind of the idea for Liberty Land and, of course, the design and construction and the the years that it operated and then unfortunately it's closure and, and what happens. So it's really from, from start to finish the the life of, of this amusement park and what effect it had on Memphis and how special it was really in the fact that it was one of the first amusement parks to kind of be modeled after Disneyland on a smaller scale. And so it was it, up to that point, amusement parks had been thought of as, as more of a generic, unthemed kind of assortment of rides, whereas Liberty Land was very distinctly themed. You had colonial land, turn of the century land, frontier land, each of which had very distinct themes and vibes and really celebrated different eras of America's history. And so it was very much a trendsetter in that sense, because before then you did not have a, a theme park on a regional scale. It was very much Disneyland and in those larger parks like that. So it was, you know, a unique park at the time of its inception. That's so interesting. I had no idea that it was inspired or modeled after Disneyland at all. That is so cool. Yeah, it was really designed as a miniature Disneyland. That's what, and you look at some of the rides, like the canoes that once traveled around the, uh, in the moat that surrounded Tom Sawyer Island. I mean, that was, to this day, Disneyland still operates its canoes. And so there were, there were, really some interesting parallels between the two parks, obviously different scales, but um, it was it was very much so uh, a miniature Disneyland for Memphis. So why don't you set the scene for us a little bit, because you've already touched on a little bit of those things that made it so special, you know, the atmosphere, the flavor of it. And I think I would really love to dive into that because that I, I was there very briefly as a kid at one time, and I just have a very blip of a memory of Liberty Land and not even really spending time in the park, just sort of passing through. And so I would love for those of us who really didn't get to experience it, uh, you know, what was it like? Tell us, like, give us, give us that, uh, set, set the stage. Sure. 
So when I have full disclosure, I first visited the park in 1997. And so by that point, the park was 21 years old. And unfortunately, it had over the years kind of lost those distinct Americana themes. But as part of this book writing journey, I probably combed through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand pictures of the park from all stages of its life, from the designs, from the blueprints of the park to its construction and, and early years. And really, I think the golden years of when it opened on July 4th, 1976, um, the America's Bicentennial through the mid 80s, I think were the golden days of the park. And so I think when you walked in and you saw these artifacts of, of American history, you saw the replica of the Liberty Bell, you saw this architecture, this Williamsburg style colonial architecture, you saw the old Frisco steam engine and the caboose, and you walk through and you saw one of the first things, one of the most vivid memories I have of, of walking through that park. And, it, and kind of an interesting thing is because it it was the fairgrounds amusement park prior it had been operating essentially as an amusement park for decades and so one of the unique things about the park was when you especially when you walked into the entrance you had these old old massive trees that you just don't see with amusement parks at that time especially that were built from the ground up so you walked in and it's one of my favorite things about memphis in general is just the, the canopy of trees that that cover the city. And so yes. <laughs> you walk through, especially in that area, that historic area, Cooper Young, Midtown in general. And so you walked in and there were just these massive trees. And granted, for a kid, everything is, you know, larger than life. And then you kept walking and you saw the zip and pippin towering overhead and you could hear the screams and that iconic wooden coaster sound. And so you were it was very much an immersive experience walking in, especially in the early days. And I think one of the most underappreciated aspects of Liberty Land was just the plants. There were so many plants and shrubs and trees and gardens. I mean, it was immaculate. And I think especially as a first-time visitor, guests would walk in and it would just be this just beautiful, serene, lush environment. And then you had the historic style architecture and the independence train station. And then you walk through and then you enter turn of the century land, which obviously kind of celebrated that turn of the centuries, more of like a county fair, very ornate kind of design. You had kind of the, the flat rides, the traditional flat rides, like the tilt-a-whirl and the um, the scrambler, uh, Twain's twister, the spider, which is Funny because many of those rides had existed in the fairgrounds amusement park, obviously not the same ones, but you had that kind of that county fair vibe. And then you kept walking and you entered Frontierland and that kind of that Western expansion, just that the old kind of woodsman uh, handcrafted feeling. You went into the gift shops with all these handcrafted goods and, um, just the, it was it was such a, the the historic log cabins. There were three historic log cabins that were um, brought in from different areas in Tennessee that were donated. So it was just it was very much an immersive experience. I mean, it was um, even even in its later years, it was a relatively small park, but you could still go in and um, especially in kind of once you got into the middle of the park, you it was very much an escape from everyday life. And I think that's why. It, was was so special and so enjoyable because for for just a while you could escape the you know just the the real world and and any stresses or you know distractions I guess and just kind of enjoy yourself enjoy your family your friends uh, you know it, with this quaint amusement park in the background the rides the shows it was just very much um, I think something that the the entire family could enjoy and I think that was one, that that was the appeal that you could take your family there for a day everyone could get something out of the experience play games eat food ride rides watch shows you know in its early days there were entertainers dressed as colonial characters and clowns that would roam the midways. It was very much a special place for a lot of people, especially who visited in its in its early days. I love that. That's so cool. That really helps me see why people really love it so much. And every time you bring up Liberty Land, there's just like a, ah, and a, 
you know, outpouring of memories and nostalgia for the place. It, it is there. There's so much nostalgia there. And I think for, I think everyone has a Liberty land story. And I think that's, what's so special about it. You have the story of, I, I rode the zip and Pippin when I was five, I thought I was going to fall out or, you know, I took, I, I went on my first date at Liberty land or I had my first job at Liberty land or um, I saw Elvis at Liberty land or, you know, I started my career, my, uh, entertainment career at Liberty Land. There were, there, you know, so many entertainers today got their start at Liberty Land. I think that's why it holds such a special place in so many people's hearts is because there's just so many memories and experiences there that I don't think there's anything like that in Memphis today where you can um, where you can go and, and have such an immersive experience that, that really kind of removes you from the real world and, and transports you into this leisurely kind of no worries, just an enjoyable place. It's unfortunate that, you know, that the younger generation won't be able to experience that. I tell people it's heartbreaking when I hear, you know, when I'm talking with someone either that's younger or is maybe new to Memphis and they say, what's Liberty Land? It just, it hurts that, you know, that some people won't, you know, won't be able to experience what what so many Memphians were able to. So I have a ton, I mean, a ton more questions about Liberty Land. And I want to go into details about some of the stuff you've already brought up. Before that, though, because I know that's going to just send us down the rabbit hole, I do want to know a little bit more about what it was like in its original, you know, before it was Liberty Land, when it was just the the fairgrounds or, or that early iteration. And since you did pull up so many photos and you did so much research for the book, I think you're probably the guy who can tell me about that place and what, sure. what that original, you know, vibe was. Yeah. So the Fairgrounds Amusement Park kind of came from, obviously it was part of the fairgrounds. <laughs> the name kind of gives it away, but it Which started- means what exactly? Being part of the fairgrounds. Sure. So the Mid-South Fairgrounds, where today, you know, the Liberty Bowl stands, Tiger Lane, Mid-South Coliseum, the Children's Museum, that kind of block. Uh, it's East Parkway, Central, Southern. What and, am I forgetting? Oh, the, the street that crosses the railroad tracks behind the stadium? Yeah. Early Maxwell, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's a, some football player, right? <laughs> or a coach, sure. maybe? I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, and actually I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the, uh, probably the best person to talk about the fairgrounds, uh, gentleman who helped me immensely. I, I, his name should be on the cover of this book. Uh, John Delaney is an expert in with the Mid-South Fairgrounds, just knows everything there is to know. And really that entire chapter would not have been possible without him. There's an entire chapter dedicated to the Mid-South Fairgrounds. But essentially, the short of how the Fairgrounds Amusement Park came to be, the Mid-South Fair was, was a success, a huge success. Obviously, it was, it was so important for the region that the organizers in the city kind of wanted to capitalize on that success. Obviously, with it being an event, it was only, um, you know, it was only going on for a portion of the year. They wanted a way to kind of extend that, that success and continue having people you know, spend money and come to the come come to the area. And so the Fairgrounds Amusement Park was created as a way to kind of lengthen the visits or the frequency, increase the frequency of people's visits to the park. So um, along with the Zip and Pippin and the carousel, there were um, some other kind of common fairground type rides and, that you would find in an amusement park. So like the spider and um, a Ferris wheel and the old mill ride, which was like an indoor kind of campy haunted boat ride. Uh, the Noah's Ark ride, which is, I think there's only one remaining in the uh, in the country, it's kind of a walkthrough funhouse type type setup. And over time, there were more rides added. In the fifties, there was a kitty kitty land area which was geared specifically towards kids. And so it it became it, it was such a success. So it was more of a it wasn't it, it wasn't that immersive type feel. It was more it was really just more so an assortment of of amusement park rides. And so I like to think that. The that amusement park kind of set the stage for Liberty Land. It it uh, it kind of sparked the idea of city leaders who who kind of saw this and its success and thought, hey, maybe there's a way we can take this to another level. 
capitalize on the interest. There was obviously an interest in, in, in an amusement park, a leisure park in Memphis, because um, so many people were visiting it. And it's funny, a lot of people don't know, but there was also an amusement park near where Overton Square stands today called East End Park. And it also had a roller coaster. It's a, con- it's a myth that uh, the Zip and Pippin was actually built at East End Park and was moved to Liberty Land. As far as everyone who I spoke to can tell in all the research that I did, that was not the case. The roller coasters that operated there were, were torn down with the park, I believe, which closed in 1912, maybe per- perhaps later. So anyway, so there was, in that day, those types of trolley parks, as they were called, because the trolleys would move people move people to and from the park. For whatever reason, the Fairgrounds Amusement Park was kind of the one that uh, of the two that, that survived. And so it by the 50s and the 60s, it had enjoyed many, many years of success. And I think some people caught on to its success. You know, and by this time, Disneyland was well established. And that kind of started the wheel turning, so to speak, to design and to build this amusement park on the site of, or this miniature theme park on the site of the Fairgrounds Amusement Park. So really, Liberty Land, I think we have fairgrounds amusement park to think because otherwise i don't think you would have had that that inspiration or that belief that that memphis could support uh an amusement a theme park like liberty land interesting so one thing that i have definitely seen and get the feel for about liberty land is that just like memphis it was a little weird And so I'd like to talk about some of the weird aspects of Liberty Land, maybe the weirdest shows or the weirdest quirks or some of your favorite just weird Liberty Land things. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I so wish that Liberty Land was around to this day, was still here because I just think, I think as over the years, Memphis has embraced its its weirdness or kind of that that you know the grit and grind the it's you know we we don't memphis doesn't try to be something it's not it's very authentic that's one of the things i love the most about memphis and so i think um liberty land i think there's so many there's so many just little things that i hear especially like the the uniforms that in the early days that the employees wore these colonial dresses and um you had the colonial soldiers who who marched around the park and that wasn't necessarily unique to Liberty Land because obviously Disneyland had been doing it but it was on that smaller scale so you had in the creative arts building uh, which is now the women's building and in the basement of that building you had these seamstresses who who handmade every single uniform what um, <laughs> yes it was like hours and hours and hours spent on those uniforms you had the like the shows um and not that those were weird but they were Melinda Grable was the park's entertainment director from the day it opened until the day it closed. The the hours that were put into those shows and um, award-winning shows on a national level. But then you had, you know, you had the smaller things like the Engine Joe's canoes that circled Tom Sawyer's Island, which was kind of a, a playground for kids. And so I had all of these pictures. I got stories for many of them, but there were still some that I just couldn't get the story behind or the full story. And so there's one picture that stands out, and I don't believe I was able to include it in the book. But um, it was in one of the little ponds or lagoons, and it was a, a giant log and like a, I don't know what the, the correct term for it, but you had two people that were on the log, I guess, trying to knock one, one another off. Ah. Um, so just something like that. I, you know, I have no idea what, <laughs> what the purpose of that was. Then you had the world's longest love seat, which was this long, I don't remember, it was probably a redwood tree or something like that, but it had... Uh, seats carved into it. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know when it left the park, but in the early days, it was just this long, long log essentially with seats carved into it. Um, The petting zoos, you had these large petting zoos that were kind of scattered throughout the frontier land area. So you could go and pet goats and all these different sheep and alpacas or llamas or or something like that. I mean, it was just, there were so many just weird, quirky things about the park that really made it. Those are the pictures when I was um, 
researching and kind of organizing everything for the book, those are the pictures that stand out in my mind. The dolphin show, the sea lions, it was, it was such an eclectic park, I think, especially in kind of the 80s and 90s timeframe when it was branched off from that strictly American themed park, but it still had these little quirks and just characters like the clowns. There were so many clowns in the parks in the 80s and 90s. I'm not sure what it was, but the the giant paper flowers that the colonial dress um, employees would make, these tissue paper flowers. And I spoke to one former employee that was just like, those were the biggest pain to make, but they were just so cool. You don't see things like that in amusement parks today that those handmade like giant paper flowers um yeah we had a someone commented and left a that was one of their memories on that blog post at memphishistory.com that you wrote was about getting those paper flowers (laughs) yeah i mean it was just there, there are things like that i've been to amusement parks all over the country and you just don't see like some do have the handcrafted um craftsmen handmade goods like Liberty Land did, which I think was was unique as well. But you just don't have those types of, I, I guess, little uh, knickknacks, I guess, that, you know, were, were handmade like that. It's just there are so many little weird things about the park that just make me love it even more. Yeah. So some of those weird pictures, even the ones you couldn't uh, really get the full story on, uh, do you think we could put those on the show notes for this episode? Just so yeah. people can see them. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's one of, that was one of the hardest things of this book was the format was very much set by the publisher just because it is part of a series. And so the length was set. I mean, I could have easily written a book that was twice as long. Um, this book is 96 pages long and it would have been very, very easy to surpass 200 pages. And I think that was one of the hardest things about the book was having to narrow down the images and that were featured. I mean, there were just so many and it was really, really hard once uh, over the next year, hopefully is to build out rememberlibertyland.com and add a lot of those photos that I wasn't able to include. And I've had some people come forward now that the book's been out and said, oh, I've got all these stories. And I, I tried to <clears throat> broadcast as much as I could the need for photos and stories, but wasn't able to include all of them. And so, I w- yeah, definitely will, would be more than happy to share some of those. Awesome. So they'll be at memphistypehistory.com slash libertyland for the show notes for this episode for those of you following along and want to see them. You mentioned the dolphin show, the sea lions, and I'd love to know, I guess I find the performances and the shows around Liberty Land to be really interesting. And I've seen some weird pictures. Um, And I know there were a lot of like just Memphis characters who had maybe TV shows, radio shows, did they ever pop up in Liberty Land as well? I've heard a story about a roller skating monkey that perhaps learned how to skate at Skateland and then maybe performed at Liberty Land. We could never really make that connection for sure, but just that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, Zippy the Chimp might be who you're referring to. He performed at the park regularly for many, um, I can't recall how many years, but I think he lived on site with his two human parents. <laughs> so he would perform, like I said earlier, I think it, Liberty Land really was a launch pad for a lot of people, For the, especially in regards to the, the shows. I guess Melinda Grable was the park's entertainment director and she was just wonderful. I mean, so dedicated to the park. Liberty Land was really a source of pride for a lot of those people. And to this day, you have people who have maintained contact and are very close with some of those other performers. And so, you know, because Memphis had su- has, has such a musical history, its musical heritage, that really went hand in hand with Liberty Land shows, especially in the early days. There were three theaters, three or four fe- theaters. And so you had all these different shows and um, it really was a place for aspiring entertainers to to get their starts and um and it was funny when i was interviewing melinda for the book she she said that liberty land would would often trade performers with opryland in nashville the former opryland amusement park and people would would go there and perform and would come back or vice versa and so uh jerry lawler i believe was was 
very involved with the park. There were the televised matches that, that took place at the park. And so there were many local celebrities who, who were very much involved with Liberty land. And there was a TV show, a, a dare kind of a daredevil type TV show that was, that filmed an episode at the park where uh, one of the stuntmen, they took one of the cars of the revolution, which was the steel looping roller coaster kind of retrofitted it with essentially skis and he skied the track of the revolution with what? the loops and the corkscrews. So um, there were a lot of people who personalities, I guess you could say, that were very ingrained in Liberty Land or definitely made an impact on the park. You don't even really get a test run for that sort of thing, skiing the roller coaster, right? <laughs> yeah, I love roller coasters. I love uh, the thrill, the adrenaline, but I think that's definitely where I would draw the line. Oh, man. <laughs> Rebecca and I have had this experience of sort of collecting stories, putting them together with history, rumor, lore, all those things in a book. And so I totally get even what you're saying about like, I put it out there for stories and I got so many after it's already in print and, you know, like, what do I do with them? And so I think uh, I'd really like to know, uh, do you have, are there any memories or stories that just totally like stumped you? that someone told you about or really sent you down a rabbit trail or anything like that? Not memories, but one of the things that just got to me or that I couldn't just let go. And I'm, I am determined. I will find out the answer to this and it's not directly related to Liberty land. But so when Liberty land was being designed, kind of this idea was being floated around. It was very much a fight for the people who wanted to build it. I mean, everyone wasn't on board immediately. There were definitely some, um, hurdles that had to be overcome. But supposedly, and there are news articles that back this this claim, that there was a mystery developer that was publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange that came forward when Liberty Land was being designed that wanted to build a theme park on the land that is now known as Shelby Farms, the old penal farm. And it would have been... A, it, a, apparently would have allegedly would have rivaled Disneyland in its size. And so wow, um, that's just been one of the things that I didn't know beforehand. I know a lot of, you know, that in Liberty Land's later years that had been toyed, the idea had been toyed around to move Liberty Land to the Agri Center, but supposedly they were somewhat serious about building a, a major theme park on the site of uh, the penal farm. And so it's really interesting to think, you know, play the what if game of, you know, what if that had happened and it, no one's been able to confirm who it was or what happened to it. Obviously they kind of backed away from it for whatever, you know, we don't know the reasoning, but um, that was one of the things that just kind of stumped me of, of who was it. And it's just the, I think the journalists within me, I really wanted to go and, and kind of chase that down and try to figure out who it was, how serious their plans were. But as far as the park itself, memories or things that, that stumped me, um, I can't think of any one off the top of my head, but there were pictures that I would come across that I could couldn't really match up with, I guess, the the timeline of the park. There would be certain rides that, you know, it looked like they had operated at Liberty Land, but they didn't. There like was what? Uh, that seems weird well, to me. <laughs> yeah. So there was one, because basically when I was given photos, I was also, I got a lot of press releases from the park. So there would be things that were referenced that I couldn't find pictures of or I would find one picture of and I would ask like, did, you know, did this ride actually open? What happened to it? More so from just the, the roller coaster nerd in me, just the amusement park geek with the different rides. And so on the grand scale of things are relatively minuscule, but there was also like a, a very small kids roller coaster that operated through from when it opened through the early eighties, I believe. And nothing, nobody really knows what happened to it. If, you know, it, it obviously closed and left the park, but why just little things like that kind of dead ends that um, I wasn't able to, to really pin down. And I'm sure just I, I talked to so many people and took so many notes that I'm sure there are some 
interesting things that I wasn't able to chase down. But I think that that developer will still just kind of stick with me until I can figure out. I just want to know what what did they plan? It's just it, it'd be so interesting to to see what kind of what they were considering, for, just given the size of, of Shelby Farms, you know. I love Shelby Farms as it is today. Don't get me wrong. It's one of my favorite places in Memphis. But to think of it as some Disney World size theme park resort is certainly interesting. Yeah. What a, I mean, what a different place it would be if that had happened. Because I think one of the things that I think that's always going to hinder Liberty Lane was its size. I mean, it was essentially landlocked and just for it to have expanded, it would have really, I think, conflicted with the Liberty Bowl and the fairgrounds. And so it was really, in that sense, I mean, to, for parks to be amusement parks to be successful, they have to be able to grow in some way. And, you know, parks that are landlocked can do a great job of fitting in rides and into small spaces. But Liberty Lane was small to begin with, and it really just did not have a lot of room to expand. And so you combine that with the financial hardships that the park faced. And I think if it had, if Liberty Lane had been built at Shelby Farms, what is now Shelby Farms, I think it, it definitely might have ended differently. Perhaps, you know, you'll never know. But Because I guess, is it because you need to grow so that there's something new f- to keep people coming back to? Yeah, that's to an extent. Um, I think there were a number of factors that contributed to the park's demise, but you have to build things to keep people coming back. And especially in the park's later years, what it was able to add was just, it just wasn't enough um, to bring people back. And so you had a park that was already small and then the lack of, of attractions and they did everything that they could. People who were really dedicated to the park did everything they could. Yeah, obviously, you know, there were some conflicts of interest there, I think. But I mean, the fair essentially had kept Liberty Land alive. The success of the fair in its later years, the fair also, I think, was facing some decline in popularity. And so it couldn't support the park and it was kind of a, a nail in the coffin, so to speak, for the park. Can you talk a little bit about that interplay between the fair and the park? Sure. Um, and I tried to avoid in the book getting getting too political just because the wounds are relatively fresh. I mean, they're 10, 12 years old now, but everyone has an opinion on that. Who is to blame? And I don't. I've always said I don't think there's any one person to blame for the park's downfall. I think it was a number of factors. But I do think that the fair and and Liberty Lane was owned by the Mid-South Fair. Mid-South Fair was in in charge of running it. it. Originally, they had been separate so you had Liberty Land's board of directors or Liberty Land's management and the Mid-South Fairs. And I can't remember the, the day that that happened, but it was after Liberty Land had, had been, I think had been losing money that they were combined. And so the Mid-South Fair oversaw the park. And I think the focus was on the Mid-South Fair and it was generating more money. And at the end of the day, it is a business. And even though it's a nonprofit, it was, they were still obviously aiming to, um, to, to be as successful as possible. And so, you know, I, I don't want to speculate or make any assumptions, but I know there, there were people who had their heart and soul poured into Liberty Land and really wanted to see it succeed and who'd been there from the beginning. And, and not necessarily there are people who wanted it to fail, but people who were focused more on the fair. Um, and I know I spoke to people um, who were involved with the vote to close the park and they said that there were tears. I mean, it was just heartbreaking to make that decision. And when I was a kid and this was all happening, I just thought those were, I just saw this room full of evil villains who were just, you know, laughing, yeah, evil laughing and were, you know, voting to close the park. But that's really, that wasn't the case. There were people who were very, very much dedicated to the park and had seen it grow up and wanted nothing but success for it. But at the end of the day, it was just, they just weren't able to keep it afloat financially. And you can argue that there could have been things done. And it's one of those coulda, shoulda, woulda games. And I think the fair and Liberty Land being owned and operated or, or managed by the same group, I think, was possibly not the smartest move, but I think it's what had to be done given the financial hardships that the park was was facing. So before 
sort of that decline, how did the park and the fair go together? It, how did they, like, what was that relationship? Because I sort of have, and I, and I hope this is a real memory, but I have this blip of little memory of going to some type of rodeo maybe, and then exiting the rodeo into the amusement park and being shown by my parents to zip and pippin and then leaving is what I think. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that the, I know the rodeo was a huge part of the fair. Essentially during the fair, you could, Liberty land was open. It was part of the fair technically. And so you could go into Liberty land for free and then you would pay per ride or you would pay for a wristband as opposed to when the fair wasn't in operation, you would go, you would pay a general admission for the fair for the most part, aside from, from some, it was like most theme parks, you would pay for admission and then you could ride most of the rides for free, except anything that was like an upcharge. So yeah, that was the first time that I visited Liberty Lane was during the fair. Um, Cause I remember riding the Ferris wheel at the fair, Liberty Lane had its own Ferris wheel for a while and seeing the revolution, the zip and pippin off in the distance. And I still, to this day, that is such a vivid memory because I remember seeing this bright white roller coaster in the distance and just being so, I was like, what is that? That looks so cool. And so, um, for many people, the, the visit, they only visited Liberty Lane because of the fair. So, um, I know that was a successful time. I think the park made a lot of money during that time, just because there were so many people there who otherwise wouldn't have, wouldn't have visited the park. So what about any favorite memories that people told you that you just found really impactful or charming or whatever, and whether they made it into the book or not, I'd love to hear one or two or something. Yeah. Yeah. There were so many stories that people told me, and unfortunately given the format of the book, which is, you know, is very image focus so that each image has a caption under it. And so unfortunately, I wasn't able to incorporate too many stories into that. But again, as I kind of rebuild, remember libertylane.com, that's some of the things that I hope to incorporate. But I remember one gentleman who worked at the park, maybe in maintenance, I think, but Elvis Presley, who of course rented out the park regularly, is Zip and Pippin was his favorite roller coaster. I think one night he lost his belt buckle on the ride. And this guy was actually able to find it and you know very honest man returned it to elvis's people and so I, mean, I just thought that was so cool elvis he would rent out the park and would just he would go from ride to ride and they would i think if i recall correctly they would have one employee staffed at one of the prano pup stands because he would eat prano pups and ride the zip and pippin over and over i mean it sounds like a fantastic time if you yeah. ask me um i talked to the one of the guys who was um who wore the hound dog, the Liberty Lane hound dog mascot costume. And he said it, they could only stay in the costume for 30 minutes because it would overheat so quickly Whoa. that it was a, I, I guess a health hazard. So they were limited to 30 minutes inside the, um, inside the costume. <laughs> so were there a lot of them that worked it or did the, did the hound just only show up every once in a while? <laughs> yeah, I think, I guess he only showed up every once in a while. So yeah, it was, and it was of course a very heavy costume as well. So it was, they you had to be really dedicated to play that role, so to speak. <laughs> That's funny. And, and then you had the memories of people who, the employees who worked at the park and could go and ride rides while on their breaks and the people who were able to go and ride the zip and pippin over and over again i mean just so many just little memories of uh, uh, here and there that you know to the average person might not seem that spectacular but you know obviously if you live them and they, they stick with you this many years it's really interesting there was another so the frisco steam engine that that was immediately inside the entrance of the park along with the caboose the caboose stayed at the park until it's it's closed until it closed but the steam engine was moved in the mid 80s to collierville where it stands it still stands today and to get that out it had been moved there i think in maybe 1950 it was donated to the children of memphis for whatever reason it was moved out of the park i think to be restored and to move it out, they had to basically leapfrog. It's a method called leapfrogging where they had to, this is massive steam engine. They had to build a section of track behind the steam engine, pull it just enough, take the section of track out in front of it, 
and then move it to the back and then pull it back. And they pulled it all the way to the railroad tracks that parallel Southern Avenue. It took like a whole weekend, all of these volunteers, wow. just a, a task of that scale just to me, it just makes me cringe to think of all the work that had to go into that. And so just little things like that, that, you know, you might not find on a park brochure or something like that, but, um, you know, we're, we're really special to, to, to those people. So fascinating. Is there anything else about general Liberty land trivia that we should know before I start asking you some silly, uh, lightning round questions? Sure. Um, so I think just the Liberty Land trivia is the, the cool thing to me is where some of the rides have ended up. So the Revolution now operates in the Philippines. It's what? Been repainted. Yeah, it's in the what? Philippines now at a park. I was actually able to get in touch with someone there who uh, sent photos for me to use. Um, Glorious Fantasyland is the name of it. And it actually was bought by a park in Pennsylvania and it was moved there and sat in a field for years and they were going to build it, but then it just wasn't feasible. I don't think they were able to afford reconstructing it. And so I thought, well, this is, it's done for now, but then it, you know, this park in the Philippines bought it. Of course, there's a replica of the Zip and Pippin that was built in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was able to ride that. It's all new. There's nothing, unfortunately, of the original, but it's still, it's the same layout, the same feel. It's very surreal riding it. Little things like that, how it's it's been scattered. I get people will see things in antique stores and, and buy them for me. It, it's just fascinating to see where, where pieces of the park have ended up. So... Um, that's always trivia I like to share with people is, you know, and that's actually the final chapter of the book. It's kind of covering where, where all the pieces of the park ended up or as many. And, and unfortunately there, you know, there's a lot that we'll, we'll never know where they ended up or if, if they're even still in existence today, but we, Thankfully, we do know where where a lot of it, a lot of the park is now. Well, that leads me into some uh, fun lightning round questions. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So a magical genie is going to allow you to bring back one Liberty Land ride. What would it be? Oh, Zip and Pippin for sure. And it's original location, materials, train, hands down. Because right. I can go, if I ever want to take a trip to the Philippines, I can go and ride the Revolution. But there's nothing, nothing can beat the Zip and Pippin. And the carousel's reopening at the Children's Museum. Um, next month. So I'll be able to go and ride that again. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be great. You have to share a picture when you go on our Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay. If you were a Liberty Land attraction, which one would you be? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I would probably say the, the, the revolution, just the craziness of my life, the loops and, (laughs) and everything. Um, I would probably say say that it, compared to the zip and pippin it's it's a little bit smoother but um and not as old but still <laughs> still kind of a wild ride but i think anything any ride at liberty lane you're going to be comparing yourself to to an amusement park ride so um, i definitely don't want to be one of the boring ones so i think i'd have to say the revolution all right which land in liberty land would you choose to live in for all eternity colonial land by far um you had the zip and pippin um, all the trees. I'm, I love trees. Absolutely love trees. So to have those big trees, you know, standing above you, I love the architecture of that area. Um, the gardens, the, the, uh, the Liberty Bell replica, it was just a very quaint area of the park. Very, I think it was the most immersive, most, uh, I don't know if I want to say historically accurate, but with the Liberty Bell replica, it's, it's, it's pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, I would definitely live in the colonial land area. All right. And then the last one, the Zip and Pippin and the Revolution are in a boxing match. Who wins? Zip and Pippin, hands down. It's got the, the street cred, the, the age, the angle of being Elvis Presley's favorite. Yeah, it would, no brainer. All right. Well, uh, tell everyone how they can get your book. Yeah, so you can go to um, libertylandbook.com, order it there. It's at bookstores across, the, across Memphis, Burke's Books and Cooper Young, Book Juggler on South Main, 
the new novel bookstore, which used to be the booksellers at Laurelwood, um, Barnes and Nobles. Um, I'm going to have a book signing. I've got some book signings scheduled, and just in case they they change after this podcast is um, is aired, you can they're all listed on LibertyLandBook.com, so you can buy them there. You can buy that on um, my uh, publisher's website on Amazon, but I like to tell people to to shop local and visit a bookstore. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show, telling us about Liberty Land. And I think everyone's going to, I mean, we're going to be just bombarded with stories and memories. I just know it. <laughs> oh, I can't. Yeah. And I can't wait to see him again. I hope it, my goal with this book was really to to be a tangible object to, to kind of, as cliche as it sounds, to keep the memories alive and um, and be a reminder and, and a way as people can connect and share those stories, even if they weren't, you know, in the book. But um, it was absolute pleasure to to be on here and, and to be able to talk about the park. So I love the show. I love the book. It's just it was it, it, it's a pleasure. Well, thanks. Thank you for for coming on and sharing all your knowledge. Everybody get in a book. I know Memphis is going to love it. Um, they're going to and they're going to love the website and getting to relive everything Liberty Land. So. Head over to show notes, memphistypehistory.com slash libertyland. We'll have all the links, everything we mentioned here, plus all those cool photos and probably some other gems that we haven't even thought of yet. So yeah, be sure to go over there. So you've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. We like your type. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. It would mean so much to us if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. Want to be part of Memphis Type History and get behind the scenes content, merch, and more? Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Memphis Type History. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Memphis Type History. Find more Memphis Type History on our blog at memphistypehistory.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as Memphis Type History, and on Twitter at Memphis Type. So in case you guys don't realize this, Memphis Type History is not just a podcast, and you probably already know that it is a blog, but it's also a book. We wrote a book and published it in 2014, right? We did. And it's called Memphis Type History, Science and Stories from Just Around the Corner, Written by me, Caitlin, and illustrated by Rebecca. And, well, I don't know. That's not a good way to put it. Not illustrated by, but, like, it has your Memphis-type illustrated paintings in it. <laughs> so each of Rebecca's paintings is the jumping-off point for the history in each chapter. And you can buy the book in Memphis. Oh, yeah? Yes. <laughs> so one of the places in Memphis that you can get our book is More Than Words in Germantown. More than words. Oh, go ahead. More than words. We love you. Oh, I thought you were going to sing the song, More Than Words. Oh, more than words. Yes. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a good song. It is. And I have a fun history fact to tell you about Germantown, where More Than Words is located. Oh, please tell. During World War One, because there was a lot of anti-German sentiment in the U.S., Germantown changed its name. Really? Yeah. It, for a little while, it was briefly known as Neshoba, which is an Indian word that means wolf. Oh, okay. And then it went back to uh, Germantown. Yeah. So if you want to go to Germantown, past alias Neshoba, head over to West Street and visit More Than Words and pick up our book. More Than Words. <laughs>